Welcome to the PivotCast. This episode was recorded on March 28, 2019 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Cassidy McFasden, Derek Mascarenas, Laura Bedeau, and Julianne Batek. Just so you know that this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. We have four amazing readers for you tonight. It's actually, I'm really so thrilled that you're all able to be here because I know it's a busy reading season, um, but it's going to be a great one. So thank you for coming. So kicking things off with Derek Mascarenas. Derek is a graduate of the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies Creative Writing Program, a finalist for the Penguin Random House of Canada Student Award for Fiction, and a nominee for the Marina Nemat Award. His fiction has been published in places such as Joyland, the Dalhousie Review, Maple Tree Literary Supplement, Cosmonauts Avenue, and the Antigonish Review. Launching this April with Book Hug, Derek's debut book, Coconut Dreams, explores the lives of the Pinto family through 17 linked short stories. Please welcome Derek. Okay, thank you for having me and uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, so as mentioned, my book, uh, Coconut Dreams, I'm going to read um, one story called uh, Picking Trilliums. And uh, so Coconut Dreams, most of the stories are told from uh, a brother and sister um, growing up. And uh, I usually read from uh, Aiden's point of view, which is the brother, but uh, tonight I'm going to read uh, from Ali's point of view, which is a little girl. Um, the only other thing you need to know is that this story is set in the early 90s, and it's uh, in Burlington. Picking Trilliums. Only when, the, only when we're the last ones left on the bus ride home does Aiden talk to me. Between bumps that send us bouncing slightly in our seats, he turns to me and asks, Why were you late today, Allie? Tommy Girl wanted to see my feet, I say. And why did that make you late? Aiden takes an orange left over from lunch out of his bag. He bites, into the bottom, bites it with his bottom teeth to break the skin and starts peeling it. Mrs. Bissette made me dust the chalk brushes before I left. I tell him. I hold up my hands as proof. They're dried white by the chalk, like I've switched hands with an old person. I rest them at my side so I don't get chalk on my skirt. But why did your teacher keep you? Aiden peels the orange skin off like a spiral. Tommy Girl wouldn't stop bothering me, so I kicked him in the stomach. I think my brother will be happy that I've stuck up for myself, but he stops peeling the orange and shakes his head. Allie, you're not going to make any new friends if you go around kicking people. But it's not my fault. That meanie kept asking me if my toes were brown, too. And I don't want to be Tommy's friend anyway. It isn't fair. I used to have best fr a best friend named Sarah in my class. She had a gray cat named Smoke, and she liked dill pickle chips. But she moved away when her dad got a new job in Peterborough. I still don't know where that is. A few weeks later, we got Tommy Grow in our class. Aiden says, Tommy's probably only curious. Next time, tell him your feet are the same color as the rest of you. Aiden splits the orange he peeled in two and offers me half. I shake my head then pick at a piece of green sticky tape that covers a hole on the back seat ahead of us. You said you'd protect me. With orange slices still in his mouth, Aiden quickly says, I will. He swallows and adds, I'll talk to Tommy tomorrow. Tomorrow's our field trip. Then the day after, I nod my head, feeling better. Did anyone ask, ask you to see your feet when you were in grade two? Worse. The boys 
asked what color my you-know-what was. He points at his crotch. And the girls, the girls wanted to see, feel my soft brown ears. Aiden smiles his slow smile, like honey being poured. It's impossible not to smile with him. And don't worry, alley cat. We won't tell mom. We'll just rinse your hands in the garden hose before we go inside. I forgot about mom. I'd be in big trouble at home if I got in small trouble at school. She always puts our education first. It's a good thing she won't find out tonight, or she might not let me go on my field trip tomorrow. I'll tell her after that. I think she'll be on my side anyway. She, did, she was the last time something like this happened. It was Black History Month, and we learned about Rosa Parks not sitting at the back of the bus. I found it strange how she wanted to sit at the front. Everyone I know fights for a spot at the back of the bus. I asked Mrs. Bissett, where would I sit on the bus back then? I don't know, she snapped. It's not an appropriate question. When I told mom, she said it was a perfectly fine question, and she agreed with me. Maybe I'd sit somewhere in the middle, like I do now. The Royal Botanical Gardens are a short bus ride from our school, but so different from the concrete schoolyard. Everywhere, giant trees and plants are coming to life. Our class spends most of the morning inside the greenhouses. The air is wet, and there are shiny-leaved plants from all around the world, with some, some with flowers as bright and colorful as saris. Then it's lunch. I avoid sitting near Tommy because of what happened yesterday, and because Mom packed me a brown paper bag with a juice box and two chapatis with peanut butter. East meets west, she said. Almost everyone else has white bread sandwiches. Chapatis are tastier, but sometimes I wish I had the same lunch so I wouldn't have to explain what I was eating. Natalie Dibbon is the one who asked me about it today. She's my buddy for the field trip, and her mom brought her a special lunch too. Natalie always tells people she's different because she has diabetes, and she shows ever in her lunch instead of keeping it hidden, like me. After lunch, we are led on a nature walk through the forest trails. I've worn my pink rubber boots because mom said it might rain. Our guide points out things along the way as she leads the group. My teacher, Mrs. Bassett, is at the back chatting with Mrs. Dibbon, a nurse who works night shifts, so sh she can usually come on her school trips to help supervise. I wish my mom could get time off work too to come. I hear birds chirping in the trees, but can't spot any because Natalie keeps distracting me. Do you like my medic alert? She holds up her arm, showing the bracelet off like it's diamond jewelry. It's nice, I say. How many needles have you had? I shrug. I've taken so many needles, they don't even hurt anymore. Needles are scary. I could never imagine them not hurting. When I think of them, a circus starts in my stomach. We stop walking, surrounded by tall trees that show only small pieces of sky. Our guide pulls out a big bag of bird seed from her knapsack. She carefully pours piles of seed into our hands, one by one. Everyone crowds around her and wants to be first to get theirs, including Tommy. I wait till everyone's moved on before I get my seeds. Spread out into a circle, our guide says. Hold your hands very still and they will come and get it. Small birds appear in the forest like magic. They come closer, down to lower branches, then right into the hands of my classmates. Some of the students laugh out loud. A few scream and drop the seeds on the ground, and others stare silently. But no bird lands in my hands. 
I'm in the same circle, and I hold my hands as still as I can, but still n none come. Mrs. Bissett begins to gather students along the trail, to continue along the trail. I tell her I haven't fed any birds yet. She gives me a look. I can stay behind with Allie until she gets one. It's Mrs. Dibbon, Natalie's mom. Oh, you don't have to do that, Mrs. Bissett says. It's not a problem. I'd be glad to. All right, then. Allie, what do you say to Mrs. Dibbon? I say thank you, but I could have hugged her. I like her much better than Natalie. Tommy approaches Mrs. Bissett. I didn't get any birds either. I don't blame the birds for not wanting to go into Tommy's hands. He'd probably try and catch them. I can't understand why they wouldn't come into my hands, though. Maybe they can still smell the chalk from yesterday. But I washed my hands well. Plus, I'm not even sure birds can smell. Okay, Tommy, you can stay behind as well, says Mrs. Bissett. We'll have to switch partners. Tommy, you're now with Allie. Natalie, go with Ryan. The rest of my class follows the guide down the trail, while Tommy and I wait to see if we can, we'll have more luck with the birds. Mrs. Dibbon tells us to stretch our arms out as far as away, away from us as we can and be very quiet. My hands are cupped tight to try and hold them still. I worry the birds are no longer hungry, but then one lands on the tips of my fingers. It's small with brown feathers and it's back on its back and lighter ones on its tummy. The bird has a short beak and black eyes that stare at me for just a second as if asking first. I feel its feet pricked my fingers, but they are too light to hurt. The bird dives in to eat the seed, but soon pops back up to look around, its head moving from side to side. It looks delicate. One more nibble, and the bird takes off into the trees. I brush my hands together and let a the few remaining seeds fall to the ground. Then I put my hands in the pocket of my sweater and look over at Tommy. He's standing still with his hands cupped together. He has two birds nibbling at the seeds and he isn't trying to kill them. Mrs. Dibbon gives me a wink, but I've spotted something, trilliums. They sit next to the path waiting to be noticed, like they've chosen a bad spot in hide and seek. Once you see them, you can't miss them, bright white on the forest floor and appearing secretly like the birds. Oh, I love trilliums, says Mrs. Dibbon, a sure sign of spring. Do you kids know it's against the law to pick them? Really, says Tommy. Really, says Mrs. Dibbon. Picking the flower does awful damage to the plant. It can take a long time before it regrows, if at all. The only time it's acceptable is if you're going to transplant them. I tried it once. I put one in my front yard, but it just wouldn't take. They don't like the direct sunlight. I guess that's why you have to come out here to see them. Mrs. Dibbon, I say. Yes, sweetie. My mom told me that trilliums are angels. God sends them down to see the world first from the ground up, and they can only get their wings after they've been trilliums. But if they get picked, they can't make it back up to heaven. Little angels, Mrs. Dibbon says. Allie, tell your mother that's a lovely story. Before I can answer, Mrs. Dibbon comes running down the path, screaming Mrs. Dibbon's name. Her face is red. Natalie's had an attack. She's passed out farther up the trail. I see Mrs. Dibbon's face change as she shifts gears like she must at the hospital when a patient comes in. I'm on my way, she says. Allie, Tommy, stay right here on the trail, Mrs. Biss Mrs. Bissett tells us. I'm going to run and t call 911. 
The two women run off in opposite directions down the trail. I want to go with Mrs. Dibbon. Adults always think they can run faster than, than kids, but I can run like the wind. I wonder if they'll take Natalie to the hospital. Maybe if she hadn't talked so much about her diabetes, it wouldn't have happened. That's wrong. I hope she'll be okay. I can't see my teacher or Mrs. Dibbon anymore, and I, no I notice how quiet the forest has become. I turn to Tommy. He's stepped off the trail and is creeping towards the flowers. What are you doing? Nothing. He crouches down beside one of the trilliums and puts his hand around it. Stop it, I yell. Make me. I follow Tommy into the forest, but it's too late. He plucks the trillium flower from its leaves. I can't believe what I've just seen, and I want to cry. Here you go. Tommy holds the flower out for me, like I'm supposed to take it. I'm confused why he's given it to me and still upset. I don't want it. I thought girls liked flowers. I like them in the ground. Tommy just tosses the flower to the forest floor. I'm going to tell. As soon as I say this, he pushes me to the ground. I don't see it coming, and I land on my elbows and bum. That's for kicking me yesterday, he says. The damp leaves are soaking into me, but I just lie there. Tommy grabs one of my pink boot rubber boots and pulls. He wrestles it off my foot and throws it behind him, then yanks my sock off and does the same with it. He stares for a few seconds, like he's looking at a bug. Ew, even your toes are brown, freak. Tommy turns and runs off after Mrs. Dibbon. I get up. I have to hop on one foot to get my boot and put it back on. I brush the mud and the leaves off my sweater and find my sock and put it in my pocket. On the ground where I found it, I see white petals. When Aiden and I are alone on the bus ride home again, he asks, how was your field trip? I tell him it was fine and tug at the same piece of green sti sticky tape. The day's events swirl in my head. When I got back to class, everyone was telling, telling me about how Natalie had been lying still on the ground and how the ambulance came and took her, her and her mom away. It starts to rain. Droplets race down the windows of the bus. Is that Tommy kid still bugging you, Aiden says. No, I say, but I don't look him in the eyes. Mom is always telling us how being different is a blessing and how we'll understand when we're older. Right now, I don't believe her. Different means you're different. Rain comes, rain comes down hard now and crashes against the glass planes of the, and metal roof. I can't see outside anymore. At first, it feels like we're in a car wash, but then it feels like we're trapped in a long, dark room. It feels weird having one bare foot in my boot, too. Inside my sweater, I squeeze my crumpled up sock. I don't know why I didn't put it back on. I close my eyes and think of trilliums, but can only see the one that Tommy picked. Just leaves and no petals. I wonder how long it will take to flower again, or if it ever will. Thank you. So next up we have Laura Baudot 
Laura is an author and martial artist. With Toronto as their base, she travels the world with her adventurous husband and three children. Her work has been published in literary journals, including the Danforth Review, The Fertile Source, Found Press, and Prairie Fire. Her recent collection of short stories, titled This One Because of the Dead, is forthcoming from Cormorant Books in April 2019. 10% of her writer's earnings are donated to charity, mostly organizations that help victims of conflict, such as Care Canada, the White Helmets, and the Children's Aid Society. Please welcome Lore. Thank you so much, Michelle, and thank you to Kinesia, who I've never met, but I appreciate being here. I'm uh, thrilled to be part of this amazing series. So tonight I'll be reading an excerpt from the title story of my collection, entitled This One Because of the Dead. The story is about a former ballet dancer, Julie, and her boyfriend, Akash, a mountain climber who is about to scale Mount Everest. The narrative perspective shifts continuously between these two characters. Singleton was the uncle of Akash's undergraduate roommate. When he and Akash first met, Akash bragged about his prowess in investing his family's education savings. Mostly mid-risk stuff, but when he tried high-risk ventures, he found that his stocks rose more often than they fell. It's insane, he said to his new friend. They were in a pub waiting for Singleton's nephew. Everything I do works. The gods are smiling on you, Singleton said, and drank some beer. You do some climbing. You'll find your edge. So Akash went out west, and they climbed Mount Athabasca together. For the first two days, Singleton, a mountaineering guide, gave him lessons. By day three, it was clear that Akash was a natural, hauling himself up the mountain face as though he were putting together a puzzle. Akash experienced the same sensation climbing that he did when he traded stocks. Despite the possibility of losing everything, he was certain it wouldn't happen to him, because he was that good because of the God-given talents he spoke of when he'd first met Singleton. Over time, however, he came to understand that the edge Singleton had been referring to was not Akash's aptitude, at least not solely. He was referring to luck and the fact that Akash needed to believe in it if he was going to climb mountains. Over the years, they discussed the seven summits, including Everest, which all serious mountaineers wanted to ascend. Akash didn't see the point of Everest, too famous, too crowded. Singleton disagreed. In 1963, when he was nine years old, he'd witnessed the highly publicized news that Hornbean and Unsold had made the first ascent of Everest's West Ridge. Everest hadn't yet happened for Singleton. Now he wanted to climb it with Akash. Highest peak is highest peak. And the beauty? Seriously. There's plenty of time for new routes. You're a young buck. He finally persuaded Akash by telling him that it would make him marketable. The sponsors. Think of this as an investment into your future climbs. In the end, however, Singleton is not accompanying Akash. Three years before, when they climbed Mount Elbrus, Singleton suffered serious altitude sickness and couldn't recover in time to train for Everest. By then, Akash had already spent months soliciting sponsors and training. He couldn't afford to give up. For the first time in eight years, he will climb without his partner. Julie tried several times to dissuade Akash from Everest. Not this one, she said. This one because of the dead. Those bodies that, along with human excrement and empty oxygen canisters, litter the mountain. She thinks of Mount Elbrus and how Akash had come home with his extremities frost-nipped. They had joked about it. She had told him how, when she was in ballet school, the girl's toenails blackened and fell off. He teased her about how she pronounced it ballet, 
lengthening and emphasizing the first syllable, which seemed to him to convey the upper-classness of that world. Until she saw an Everest documentary, she had no idea of the extent of the carnage. One corpse was named Green Boots because his footwear stuck out of the ice like fluorescent hard candy. Another body, an almost bald skull denuded by time, seemed to have acquired the color and texture of a naked Barbie. The camera focused on this body as strands of hair lifted and fell in the wind. Over several weeks, Julie tried to change Akasha's mind. Even as she saw that he was becoming annoyed, she kept insisting. She couldn't help herself. In bed, Akash turns away from Julie. He knows his coldness hurts her, but he can't give her anything of himself. To speak means breaking his fragile self-containment. He holds his body and mind apart, hoarding their energy for the task ahead. He works to keep frightening images at bay. Each night before a trip, he's haunted by mishaps that could be had on a mountain. The memory of Singleton, corpse-like, carried on a stretcher down Mount Elbrus. He blocks out the negative imagery by picturing the route he's plotted to take up Everest. In his mind, he realizes each step all the way to the peak. The next morning, Akash appears calm in Julie's eyes. He's speaking to her again. Be good, eh? <sighs> she makes a dismissive motion with her hand. By now she's used to the whole routine and it's never good to part on a bad note. Akash smiles. I'm hoping something happens to the creature while I'm away. The creature is Akasha's name for Julie's cat, Nureyev, who is very sick and who, Akasha has argued, needs to be put out of its misery. When the cat pulls up in front of their house, Akash kisses her on the temple and pulls her to him briefly. He bounces as he walks to the car. Julie goes back into the house and sits down on the living room knotted rug. She listens to the car's thrum turn into a roar and then fade. When Julie was 10, she watched Larissa Lejnina as Princess Aurora dance in a video production of Sleeping Beauty. Watched during the Grand Pas de Deux as Lejnina spun en pointe, her supporting legs strong, her extended legs so long it seemed to float off the stage. She didn't recognize what Lejnina had inspired in that moment until much later, when she read a reproduction of Karen Kane's childhood journal in which the eight-year-old had written, I'm going to be a famous ballerina. It was the naive certainty of a child from whom a goal and a desire for the goal weren't yet separate concepts. She auditioned for the National Ballet School, but didn't get in. She attended the lesser-known, but still rigorous, George Brown School of Dance. Every day after school, her nanny would take her there on the streetcar from King Street subway station. When she turned 11, she started going to ballet alone. She stopped off at McDonald's to eat a carton of fries before class. Skinny and careless, she downed the fries every weekday for a year, not associating her chronic constipation with the four pounds of potatoes consumed weekly. When the other girl started pointing out the layers of fat that had developed on her hips, she forced herself to stop eating the fries, replacing them with a daily consumption of muffins from a corner store. Then she heard the girl's gossip in the change room about her new choice of food, and she started throwing out the muffins after eating a few bites. Now Julie teaches dance at a private girls' art school, where she sought refuge after what she considers to be her wasted years at the call center. Here, the girls sidle up to her in the hope that she can help them achieve careers in dance. They always seem to crop up during Julie's lunch hour. This time, a girl named Melissa stands at her office door. Julie puts her fork down. The smell of fish and chips and vinegar, which she now consumes carefully once a week, fills the tiny airless room. I was wondering, says Melissa, if I could get into George Brown? Normally, Melissa's plain looking with small almond-shaped eyes and pale parchment skin. But when she's dancing, Julie can't take her eyes off the girl. 
Melissa is miles beyond her classmates. Julie watches her and forgets that effort is involved, that she has mass, muscles, bones, tendons. Julie remembers a girl who went to her ballet school. The teacher would always point her out. Watch, she would say, the extension, the feet. And the other girls, who moments before had felt airborne, would then experience the heaviness of their limbs, the work involved in the dance. Julie runs through some calculations. Three more years at four hours per weeknight, plus six hours of class on a Saturday. With the help of some open-minded teachers, Melissa has a chance of becoming a company apprentice. My parents think it's too much pressure. Melissa says this coyly, as if she expects Julie to contradict her. Julie remembers the rounds and rounds of food talk that took place in her old change room. Waists were measured with Taylor's tape, half centimeter by half centimeter. The girls were watchful for the dangers of carbs. The fries Julie eats today are saturated with that tang of guilt. On the night her beloved and feared principal asked her to leave the school forever, Julie stopped the McDonald's and bought an extra large fries. Bending the fries until they splintered, she saw her own self break. But the fries were delicious, despite being broken. The salty crunch of the crust, the starchy steaming mash, the aftertaste of oil lingering on her tongue. Your parents are right, Julie says, and hands Melissa a tissue. The kick her student executes against the door jam causes only a muted thud because of the fireproofing. You don't know what it's like to want something so bad, she says as she leaves. I do, Julie says out loud her words empty in the vinegary air of her office. At base camp, faced with the sun, cobalt sky, and the laundry line of prayer flags flickering in the wind, Akash feels possessed by the place. The hard snow crunches under his boots. Wafts of dry powder from the gray rock and needles of cold air hit his nostrils. His stomach cramps as the altitude shunts the blood away from vital organs. For him, this means nausea and loose bowels. He appreciates this first familiar assault on his body, for it makes him more self-aware, present in the moment and in his skin. Akash is staring up at the mountain when Wilson, the guide, walks up to him. He's an American with 15 years' experience. Two years ago, he summited both Everest and Lotz in a 24-hour period. Wilson started climbing as a teenager. Since Akash didn't start until his late 20s, he figures he has another 10 years to go before he measures himself against Wilson. In front of them is the kombu icefall, seagull white slabs of icing on a cake. Wilson follows his glance. Haven't lost anyone yet. Wasn't even entertaining the thought. Wilson looks back at the camp. Why Mr. Weekend Warrior chose to make Everest his first, I don't know. Plenty of good basic peaks where he's from. Weekend Warrior is the name they've given to a middle-aged businessman from Utah. <sighs> but it had to be Everest. It had to be Everest. They smile at each other. With my help and that of the gods, Wilson points to the sky. Akash longs for Singleton's companionship. They have a joint climbing history with triumphs and disappointments familiar only to them. After Singleton recovered sufficiently from Elbrus to be able to talk, Akash apologized for proceeding without him. Singleton was pragmatic. It had to happen eventually. Secretly, Akash had worried if Singleton's luck had failed once, it could fail again. Or was it Singleton, the man himself, who had failed? If something were to happen to him, he, unlike Singleton, would have recourse. He had family. He had parents. His mother. He had Julie, his eternal blonde, who, after an initial few stuttering advances, would embrace him when he returned. 
Julie's dad was a corporate lawyer, her mother a charity volunteer. Hers was a solitary childhood. The cat was her main companion. She used to sit in front of the television after ballet, her legs in forward splits with Nureyev in front of her, burying her nose in his fur in woodsy scent. At the animal hospital, Julie watches the vet listen to Nureyev's heart. The vet has silver hair and high-riding, compassionate eyebrows. The stethoscope bangs onto his chest. I always leave it to the mum and dad. Julie tells him that she'll give it a day or two to see how things go. He shows her how to push an intravenous needle under Nureyev's skin, in the spot between his shoulder blades. Are you squeamish? The dancer's toenails used to fall off, revealing pinkish-green stamps underneath. One thing I'm not, Julie says to the vet. She pays the bill and leaves his office. But she can only hold on to the cat for one more day. Nureyev's fur has started to fall out. He can no longer walk. She cries, blows her nose, picks up the phone. In the end, I can't watch him suffer anymore, she explains. In the office, the nurse holds Nureyev and Julie strokes his head. The vet brings a sliver of a needle toward the cat's right foreleg. Julie stops breathing at the exact moment Nureyev goes still. She's shocked by how little time there is between the injection and his death. The vet leaves her alone with him, and she runs her index finger along his side and his bony back. For what must be a long time, she stands next to Nureyev on the clinic table, eventually sensing his body stiffen. The fur under her finger suddenly belongs to a taxidermist model, his torso a cage of something long ago stuffed. How quickly a decision is made, thinks Julie. How rapidly things are lost. We have Julianne Okut-Bitek. Julianne is the 2019 Writer-in-Residence at Capilano University. She is a poet and a PhD candidate at UBC. Her 100 Days with University of Alberta in 2016 was nominated for several writing prizes, including the 2017 BC Book Award, the Pat Lowther Award, the 2017 Alberta Book Awards, and the 2017 Canadian Authors Award for Poetry. It won the 2017 Indie Fab Book of the Year, for poetry and the 2017 Glenna Luchet Prize for African Poetry. Julianne's poem, Migration Salt Stories, was shortlisted for the 2017 National Magazine Awards for Poetry in Canada. And her poem, Gauntlet, was longlisted for the 2018 CBC Poetry Prize. And a chapbook with the same title is due out in fall 2019. Julianne is also the author of Sublime Lost Words with the Elephants. And that was out in 2018. Please welcome Julianne. Hi everyone, um, thank you for hosting us. Uh, I'm here with my friends Erin and Omar. We've come from Vancouver, so um, thank you for having us here tonight. I'm going to read um, some poetry from The Hundred Days, and then I'll read some from the Gauntlet series that's coming out. And then I'll also read a couple of pieces that I'm calling Provocations, which is part of a, a, a longer piece of work that I've been doing with the stories of formerly abducted women from northern Uganda. So I'll start with 100 days. Um, so there's uh, four copies out there, 20 bucks a piece. And I also have uh, a broadsheet uh, for $5 a piece, if you want. And the, 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 the broadsheet is from the Writer and Residence series that I, I, I wrote this spring. Okay, so 100 days. Day 100. It was the earth that betrayed us first. It was the earth that held on to its beauty, compelling us to return. It was the breezes that were there, 
and then they were not there. It was the sun that rose and fell, rose and fell, as if there was nothing different, as if nothing changed. Day 85, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there was light from the beginning of the world, and there was light on this day like all other days. Every day there was light enough to see everything we didn't always need to see. And we didn't need to see everything every day. Day 64. There have been three so far. Three men who walk with your gait. Who turn head first the way you used to. Walk like you did. Sauntering like a cat. Laugh with your laugh. Flick the wrist to make a point the way you used to. Three men who wore your face for a moment lighted up mine. And then you were gone again. And they were just ordinary men doing ordinary things. Imposters reminding me that you used to be by me. Day 42. I kneel before you, but this is not an act of supplication. I kneel before you because I cannot stand. I kneel before you because I cannot speak right now. My gestures are wordless articulations and the dark in my eyes is not an indication of anything you could imagine. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing that you could ever give me. So now I'm going to read from uh, Provocations. Um, I think it just explains themselves, right? <laughs> it's a kind of prosy kind of poetry, but um, let's call it poetry because I don't really do prose very well. She walks into the city that might have already forgotten her. She walks into the city with her backpack front-facing. That's what they told her. The city has run out of compassion, and no one will blink if she gets robbed. She walks along the road, facing traffic. You might as well see the ones that want to kill you. Cars with their lone drivers, shaded windows drawn up, drivers with their sunglasses tight against their faces, looking straight ahead, trucks loaded with goods, headed from and to, where goods go and come from. Matatus, taxis, cars for hire, passengers with good intentions, but not enough to hold back the curses against homeless children at the traffic stops. Border border tricks weave between other vehicles, tuck in your knees or scrape the, or suffer the scrapes from the bumpers. Buses from upcountry, dusty from the distance, swerve past, huddle, beep and whistle. Winds whip up her skirt, which now she must hold on to with her left hand, her right hand on her backpack. Early morning sun. Early morning, the sun is barely up and the city is already alive. She walks into a city that barely registers her presence. Mid-morning traffic raises to a din with the smell of diesel and the honks of vehicles and the sh shouts of hawkers, mamamboga, hair pieces made in China, made in Korea, human hair, 100% human hair, real Indian hair from India will not let you down. Roasted peanuts in cone-shaped paper, boiled eggs for sale with bits of salt in tiny pieces of paper, clear polythene bags of pineapple peeled and cut into bite-sized pieces, cell phone minutes, mobile money, a cock crowing again and another and maybe the same one again and soon another call for prayer and another call for prayer and another call for prayer. Also song, praise God from whom all mercies flow and street preachers in competition and 
or solidarity with the street mad. Repent, repent, repent for the second coming of the first and only Christ. And the disco lights are on again and the night prayers begin with the low tongues of the Holy Spirit which will rise and scream to screeches in God's name all night long and the disco dancers, and the night dancers, and the DJs who will never move the dial beyond the 80s music. Thank you, Mr. DJ, for playing my song. Thank you, thank you. We have been waiting for so long. What can she want from inside this city? She walks into the evening and lifts a padlock to rap at the gate. gate. A guard opens the little door cut into the wall. I'm here to see my sister. The guard looks at her for a long time. There is no resemblance between this wraith and the madame of the, that is the boss of the house. One moment, a few minutes later, the gate is flung open and a joyful scream and a hug. And then, what happened to you? We thought you were dead. The next piece um, is, comes from an exercise I call listening, where you imagine a voice that is speaking to you from an experience you don't know anything about. So, um, I, I said earlier that I'd been writing, a, um, uh, doing some work with, with Erin Baines on the lives of women who were formerly abducted from the Lord's Resistance Army. And they operated in Uganda between 1987 and 2007. Um, thousands and thousands of children were abducted from northern Uganda and many never came back. So um, I imagine some of those voices. In this particular case, this is an imagined voice, but many of the voices that I've written are not imagined. Just as well, uh, I, before I start, I have to say also in this listening, which I'm calling an imagining, it's not really an imagining because it draws from the voices of those I've read about and spoken to. Just as well, we were taken from our schooling the land would not provide a script. People fell where they fell and they bled where they bled. Rain was a drizzle like a tease, or ferocious when it was, and then blood and pain soaked into the earth, or the sun baked it hard, hard, hard into stone that could not be read as gravestone markers. Just as well we could not read, the earth would not relent to mere text. Earth as graveyard, earth as road, Earth as watering hole, earth as life when leaves sprouted and our goats scampered by and we could eat again. And all these people without skin telling us that love will save us, that love is anything or anything at all. And why people without skin, you ask? Consider this. If these people had skin, they would feel touch. If they could feel touch, they would understand. If they understood, they would know that love will not be read in the flutter of leaves or in the sway of branches, not in the thorny scrub that lay before us, endless in the dry season, not in the pale of the sky, not in the ash on our skin covered by the tracks of urine that ran down our legs because we could not stop for mere relief, not for the cold of small water splashes down our arms from jerry cans that contained life that we would not, we could not afford, could not afford could not afford to let drop, not on your life or mine. If they had skinned these people, they would know that none of this is faith and none of this has anything at all to do with love. But love kept you alive and prayer brought you back, they say. They who were loved 
are loved, speak love and live love. But for our love for you, but for our love for you, but for our love for you, where was love, I want to ask? When fingers were hacked off, lips sliced off, ears torn off, noses broken off from limbs and faces, limbs from joints, bodies from life, where was love? Where was prayer when the man was hauled from his bike, his legs hacked off and told that his was a lesson, he should not have ridden his bike, not today, not ever, where was love? Where is your skin? What can you know in these moments that are not born of love, you without skin? Consider this also. Love is not a blanket, it is a cloud. Love is not a blanket, it is a cloud. Love is not a blanket, it is a cloud. Love is not a blanket, it is a cloud. Love is not a blanket, it is the promise of rain, it is torrent, it is the dance in the sky on a hot day, and sometimes love is nothing at all. It is its own awful emptiness riding across the sky. Consider this also. Prayer as the holy trinity of mantra, myth, and meditation. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail, hail Mary, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of the womb. Jesus, holy Mary, mother of God, mother of God, mother of God, mother of God. Pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us sinners. Pray for us sinners, pray for us sinners, pray for us sinners, because you know that my desperate prayer to live would come true when the man who would end up saving me from drowning was the worst and the first sinner among us who called himself the chosen one, someone else for whom the Hail Mary was also said. Consider this also, that those of us who knew the love of family, who had family to remember us, who had community and culture and school fees and textbooks, they were among us also. Us with no family, no love, no compound of old ones warming in the mid-morning sun. All of us holding on to death in our skin like a curse. We also survived and others did not. What love brought us home? Consider this also. The beads that he brought for us from the market in Khartoum that one time and asked me to wear it. He said that this was love. He said that these beautiful waist beads were a symbol of love. He said that wearing these beads would mean that I cared for him. He said that this would mean that we would be okay. He said that this war mattered, that, but that we, our children, us together, mattered more. He said that he would make certain that we would return home. He said that love was what mattered. He said all this, and I, smiling, 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 accepted the beads. Who wants to die of not smiling when a man offers beads as a gesture of love? And what is this thing beyond a declaration from a place of power? What is love if it is not a privilege for those who can choose? So <laughs> I'll take a step back from those poems and read for you one more poem. And uh, this is my poem, Gauntlet, that I really, really like and was short, long listed for the CBC Poetry Prize. And every time I read it, I say, it really should have won the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> Um, gauntlet, let's go, let's go write the poem that marks me, marks me, marks my body, marks up, inks down, marks terror, marks nightmare, marks discipline, marks canon, this is where that howl deepens because this is where if, how, when, and what we can write and now that I've become the script, listen. This is a poem for our own self. Let's go where neither of us has gone before, and let's go see what's what. 
let's go see the right right let's go write the right stuff write the right wrongs write the lies in the archives and write the forgotten determined by those of us you disappeared that then determines who's who and who's what and who's when because you know that you know that you know that that's my face your feet landed on that last time don't you so then mark these words mark me mark this page this time this day this rest of your life like a curse like the hail mary like the petals of a daisy you will always return to this moment on this page i got proof of life i got full throated laughter and in recent days i know where the red ribbons lay i know the ones you call fallacy the ones you call myth the ones you said are of no consequence were lies but after all were the ribbons that dion brand told us were signs of joy as unsettled as we are as uninvited as perpetual ghosts holding on to a story clad in dark dark blue this is how we got to this place this is how we left this is where we came from this is why house yes but never home this is a canadian passport we left didn't we to survive just so that they could never claim that they got every last one of us that is an actually name one name two words this is my birthplace kisumu kenya this is a canadian passport my face two worlds the british queen's head on canadian money but you got to wrap me up in viola desmond tens not anthems not flags not the brand blue of a canadian passport this is a canadian this is canadian citizenship and this is me now and this is the point this is what i read this is the rhythm of the page where my skull hardens out on what keeps me alive and awake in the archives where the curses are spelled out where we were marked up and the symbol of your power is where we disappear this is a canadian passport where my savage meets yours where my savage is you where my songs are the text of this economy spelled out in musical notes song and i stand to the woman at steam clock in gastown prefaced and gagged by numbers like mine the chorus of ancestors in the bottom of the ocean and the ones that ghost above this is a vancouver lyric libelous like gassy gastown jack who often straightens out and threatens jack himself not far from the angel who carries the body of the fallen soldier at the bottom of granville street watch the angel weep now how she carries on how she drowns out the keening around the steamed up jack we meet at the clock tower to ghost him out across time and space like petals we're drawn to the center i could be a single sheet of paper beneath your writing hand mark me write all over me but i'm no blank sheet i am the song thank you so much and last up so thrilled to have a friend of pivot a oft a frequent audience member <laughs> finally we get her to read very exciting uh cassidy mcfadzine was born in Regina and earned an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. She's the author of Hacker Packer with MNS 2015, which won two Saskatchewan Book Awards and was a finalist for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award and Drolleries, which was just launched yesterday uh, with MNS 2019. Her poems have appeared in Boat Event, The Fiddlehead Prism International and The Best Canadian Poetry 2016. and have been shortlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize and the Walrus Poetry Prize. She now lives in Toronto. Please give a warm welcome to Cassidy. I'm so happy to be here. Um thank you to Michelle and for Pivot for having me. I live like a few blocks away, so I'm 
always here. <laughs> I'm so honored to be asked to read. Um, and it's such a joy to share the stage with the three other readers tonight. I really enjoyed your, your pieces. It's my second time reading from the book ever. So I'm excited. Okay. Saturnalia. Someone left a sliver in my big toe. By Cassini's rings, was it you? I shattered a glass on the counter. When one ring falls, the rest follow through. Those shards of ice scattered into invisible meteorites across the floor, brushed my legs and feet with abrasions. I was cut by grass, bending in a fierce breeze, and dabbed at the injuries, but my blood dried. Outside, a field of wheat moved as a single mind, lowering its blades to peasants' scythes. Like Levin's slow-mowed sickle, I hunger for such synchrony. I found the feeling of sisterhood rarely. Was it only in the company of, of men when we're each of us in our bleeding and might speak to matters of the abdomen? Then it's moonlits and stars that ground me. In morning, my wool-bound feet can't walk for limping over craters. My kitchen's crystals gleam at me, guy gifts winking in their twinning. Mercury retrograde is ending or has ended tonight or today, so thank God. So I'll read this poem, Mercury, in celebration. I saw a stream of silver leave your mouth, he said, teasing the wisp of mercury, a lizard's tail, out of me. When Hermes hung retrograde, we wandered aisles, carrying mandrake, nightshade, canned half-moon hearts of palm. It was the eve of another news anchor's son's fentanyl death, climbing a mountain with no peak. We wanted to numb ourselves for the fun of it, little dogs gnawing at scraps of meat. Was that when you entered? Turning away invites you in, your hand between my thighs, feeling for an opening. When I was going to move to Toronto, my mom had a dream that I fell and injured myself. Um, so this poem is about that, and it's called Ill Omens. She woke in the dark, stricken with a premonition, my body on a stretcher, a vision of my impending trip. My mother's third eye peered into her crystal ball of night and found me brain dead. Insisting I take a taxi in the city, not get lost on subways, nor split my head open, nor fall, her worry became a cure-all. Mother crone soothes there, she listened as my once halting speech cleared to a wisp of ink billowing in the scrying bowl. I shied from her praise, loath to see shame rooted within, not specter of myself, but twin. This next poem is for uh, Daniel Renton, who is looking at the Wikipedia for Pompeii today. So <laughs> haven't we all done that? Um, so it's called Pompeii. Through my stereoscope's 3D, I see myself preserved in ash in a glass cage. I return to Pompeii in the museum alone, a model of city walls, Mount Vesuvius looming. You said we narrowly missed a landslide of hurt, like villagers who fleeing the shooting pumice somehow made it to safety. The dog chained outside the brothel wasn't so lucky. We worshiped 
Bacchus on the volcano's fertile land, drank Thanksgiving night as tremors rattled underground. Years ago, you told me to feed the monster inside, and I did. My cell phone became a bulla I clasped to my chest, waiting for you to return my text and tell me if we'd flee or burn. Screens display our final moments. The dormouse fattened for feasting, figs in a bowl black into pits. Here is a charred loaf of bread. Here is a middle-aged man proud of his accomplishments. Mars's affair with already married Venus teaches us that love prevails. My mother's premonition I'd end up brain dead, I took as an omen to stop using my head. Our eruption was Plinian, flash heat contracting our muscles to climax. This one is called Mood. Witch hazel in my pussy, rose water on the brain. Let's not go down memory lane, but memory locker, a feeling stored away. I keep my, my garbage in the freezer, just like this city taught me. I know it's love when during sex, my new lover wipes my ass for me. Zip up your feelings, will advise, looking over the Brooklyn Bridge. I watch a man zip his pet rat into his jacket on the subway. Have I ruined another group chat? Have I repressed a painful memory? I say goodbye with vocal fry so I can feel it in my body. Ten of Swords. This island's where the lonely go on holiday weekends away from home. I came here to think things through, like if my father's if my father figures stop trying to fuck me, will I still have d daddy issues? At the petting zoo, a pendant pig pressed his head against the grate, mewling till my fingers graze him. Poetry means never being sated. For the first time, when the male gaze follows my mini skirt down the street, I reciprocate. Your hand on my leg shows me the place you dream. We can meet there in our sleep. Fruit flies followed us from bar to bar, hovering above our bodies, parasites, medieval halos of desire. I heard a fly buzz when I read my poems at Tony Romez. In bed, I told my husband, I'm your wife. He answered back, a witch. Clinting in the woods. I found a pair of velvet-coated antlers, three fingers reached from an open palm, still throbbing with platelets' hot breath, grave markings perched on snow. I clasped the shed horns, abandoned by some migrating Buck, tri triple brow tined, doubtless cast from a fervent rut, and slid the pulsing things into my rucksack, clanging against my canteen and matches. A slit was cut in their toes, the split hoofed ungulates, seams cleave cleaving in thorny keratin like threads sewn in wool. In my embroidered tabby boots, I returned to my win winter cabin, sinking into the crust of my morning steps. The antlers battered my flesh a bluish hue, my tender skin stinging when I undressed, my bathwater steaming as the fire crackled and spat. I sighed and relaxed, conjuring what I'd read of the artifact's medicinal qualities, and examined it under cobalt flame. Finding the antlers adequate specimens, I pressed my lips against one thick branch, tongued the velvet sheathing, and chewed. I swallowed the fiber as I entered my water and within moments felt tufts of fine hair as pedicles grew. I was fated, bone collector, to wander under this same weird moon. This one is called Mind Reader. Nothing was enough. 
spilled salt you tossed over your shoulder, bad straw I threw in the air, spices struck bodies in the bar, and I asked what I was to you. Two mirrors against each other, forming a chamber of reflections that wouldn't let you through. And I just want to thank Pevet again, Michelle, the spirit of Kinesia is <laughs> around here somewhere. This one is called Study of a Torso. When pictures of decapitated journalists started appearing in my Twitter feed, their heads lulled in the dirt cartoonishly. I've been reading the news so much as it's entered me. In the night I dream, I'm attacked in my bed when my husband's away. The pain in my abdomen so sharp it wakens me. In a dark room, my iPhone leads me to the law student who didn't know she'd been attacked until she viewed it on a screen. She'd said anything to clear his name. When I drive my husband to, mer to Mercy the third time in three weeks, ice obscures the windshield. I never drive, and he makes me break so he can get out to clear the ice away. Blood streaking the glass, globules of flesh smeared on the seat. A bloody door greets our neighbor, a circular saw still plugged in on the lawn. I dreamed of it for weeks, his screams, how much worse it might have been. I'd asked if I should go back to look for his fingers, unaware he held them still attached in hand. In a room full of brains, I feel the heat of synapses. I'm a flesh marionette off balance, waiting for the next catastrophe. A weapon wails from the yard. I pick my fingers off the floor, not knowing I had it in me. Thank you. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.